for the worship with you on this Easter day. I want to talk about tombs as we begin. Tombs are peaceful places to visit in the afternoon. They're away from the hustle and bustle of the town or city. And being at a graveside, it gives us a chance to be alone with our thoughts and with our memories. But tombs are scary places to visit in the evening. It's away from the watchful eyes of caring neighbors. It's a place where we might be alone with robbers or worse. Our fears are heightened when we are by a graveside. So the question I want to pose to you today is why did the women go to the tomb while it was still dark? What was the urgency? Why not sleep in? Wait until the world was bright and the people were out and about. What made them head to the tomb where Joseph of Arimathea had placed Jesus' body as soon as the Sabbath was over? And that is the question that I want to explore with you today. Would you pray with me before we dive into the text? Dear God, we thank you for the people who chose to go to that tomb, who first met the resurrected Christ. We thank you for making their testimony effective so that others were moved to go where they too could meet Jesus. We praise you for the unbroken chain of testimony that has led to us hearing the gospel today. Would you bless us so that we might be filled with faith, some of us perhaps for the first time. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be made holy and pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's word for us today is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. The woman woke up on that Sabbath, after that Sabbath, with a sense of urgency because they were bothered by the thought that Jesus' body was buried with haste. If you remember on Friday after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to ask for the body, and Nicodemus helped him to prepare that body for burial. But they did not have much time because Jewish law forbade them from working on the body after the sundown on Friday. So they hastily, racing the clock, wrapped the body with linen and the spices that were meant to slow down the decomposition and laid it in the tomb. 
they probably didn't have the time to do the ritual washing of the body, giving it the proper care and honor it deserved. And that is why the women are in a hurry to get to the tomb, because they want to make sure that Jesus receives the care and honor he deserves. And I bring this up because I think that that's the reason why many of us first started going to church. Before we believe that Jesus rose on the third day and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, before we believe that Jesus was God, we believed in this Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified and was buried. Before we believed in Jesus' divinity, we acknowledged Jesus was a beautiful person who suffered a horrific death. And we wanted to honor Jesus. Every historian, whether in the church or in secular academia, agrees that Jesus lived and that Jesus was a prophet who spoke truth to power and refused to back down. And all historians recognize that Jesus always had powerful enemies who were trying to silence him. When he was born, the wise men from the east came to greet him and honor him, and they called Jesus the king of the Jews. And that infuriated Herod the Great, who was a jealous and paranoid tyrant. So Herod, this guy who killed members of his own household to secure his throne, had no problem ordering the massacre of all of the babies and young children in Bethlehem, forcing Jesus and his family to hide out in Egypt for a time. When Jesus came back, you remember he spent his childhood in Nazareth. And when he began his ministry as a young man, he visited his hometown as a minor celebrity. And his neighbors greeted him warmly, wanting for him to become the town mascot, the town good luck charm. But Jesus refused. And he preaches to them about how God often ignored the prayers of the people who assumed that they were first in line for his favor. And instead, God would take care of those who thought that they were the last. He was pointing out, God's not only in love with you, you can't be possessive about your relationship with God. And this enraged the people of Nazareth so much that they tried to throw Jesus off of a cliff. The Pharisees also wanted to kill Jesus as he exposed the depths of their hypocrisy and their shallow theology. As Jesus becomes more and more famous, the religious leaders become more and more motivated to undermine him and bring him down. And it's not just the elites. Jesus claims to be the son of God, often and in public. So crowds would begin to pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Because he claims divinity, Jesus is accused of blasphemy and condemned for it repeatedly. And repeatedly, Jesus drives out the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. So the hagglers and the conmen who are working in those stalls, they complain to the middle managers who pass in the reports about this Jesus, to the elites of the politicians and businessmen who join together with the religious leaders to begin to fight against Jesus. And even though his popularity was the only thing that was keeping the elites from attacking him, Jesus never focused on guarding his popularity. He alienates the zealots, those diehard patriots, by healing the son of a Roman official and befriending Samaritans. He disappoints the followers of John the Baptist by his inaction when John was imprisoned 
and eventually executed. He raises eyebrows by discipling and training women and draws criticism by spending time with people who are considered sinners. Jesus mostly hangs out with the poor and with the sick, and he does not try to you know, create allies among the rich and powerful. So Jesus has a good run. Three years of productive ministry, but eventually the hammer falls on him, as it always does throughout history on idealists who refuse to conform to the demands of the powerful. All of us who are old enough know how the world treats nice guys. So we should not be surprised when the world condemns Jesus. The only thing that is surprising is that Jesus remains committed to his teaching until the very end. Jesus never accepts a plea bargain. Jesus never asks for his followers to rescue him. Instead, Jesus submits to the cross, and there he prays for his enemies before he dies. So after the crucifixion, most of the residents of Jerusalem, having seen the rise and fall of many would-be charismatic leaders, they probably shook their heads and thought, that's what happens when people try to bring heaven about on earth. Many probably felt this mixture of pity and respect for Jesus, but with a shrug and with a sigh, they went on about their days. You understand. We've got to make the rent, or if we're privileged, we get to work on our mortgage, and even if somehow we have paid that off, we have to help our parents, equip our kids, keep up with their friends, and somehow prepare for our eventual decline. So more than our ideals, we end up prioritizing our security and our reputation, and we find it easy to ignore the ideals of the prophets among us. But there are some of us who for at least some moments have our hearts stirred because of Jesus' example and his teaching. We just can't let him go. It might hurt their career, but some refuse to laugh along when others make dismissive jokes about Jesus. Their spouses and their kids might not understand, but they feel they must give what they have and do what they can. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were like this in verse 1. They did not yet have faith to believe that Jesus was the risen Savior of the world. They did not yet believe Jesus had defeated death, but they obeyed the stirring in their heart, which cried out, Jesus, your beautiful life inspires me to do what I can for you. So whether you're a Christian or not, I believe all of us here who chose to worship or be in worship can say, we should be like the Marys. Can you say this to the person next to you? Be a Mary. What does it mean to be a Mary? In a world trying to get comfortable, strive to show the world something beautiful. Instead of siding with the mighty, support those who are acting rightly. Refuse to become cynical and hard-hearted. Pass on the wisdom that the prophets imparted. The rest of our passage tells us about the conversion of these Marys. They went from thinking, poor Jesus, he had to endure so much to thinking, great Jesus, he has accomplished so much. 
They went from thinking the teachings of Jesus are not sustainable, but they are beautiful. They should be remembered to thinking the life that is in Jesus is indefatigable, irrepressible, unstoppable. It's contagious. It's meant to be shared. If we understand this conversion, we can better pray for all of us here to experience it too. So let's dive into verse 1, where these women believed that they had to do something for Jesus. They moved with urgency and haste because they were compelled to honor Jesus' body. Let's read verse 1 together. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. They moved with urgency and haste, compelled to honor Jesus' body. They left early in the morning to get there as soon as possible, but on their way, Luke, he tells us that they acknowledged their limitations and they wondered out loud, we have the spices, we studied how to wrap up the body, we're willing to do the work, but how are we going to move the stone that blocks the tomb? It was too heavy for them. They were wondering, would we be able to convince the soldiers to move the stone for us? Would we be able to find others that we can convince to help us? They were thinking about this problem on their way to serve this Jesus when they experienced verse 2. Verse 2 tells us, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Here we see what the women worried about. What the women couldn't do, God does for them. God sent an angel to roll back the stone. And verse 3 tells us about this angel. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. We're told that this was unmistakably an angel, one whose appearance was too bright to look at directly. This angel fills the soldiers with fear, paralyzing them, and thus removes every obstacle for the women. So the Marys discover that although they faced obstacle, that God was with them, and God made them do everything that they felt called to do. And this was step one to their conversion. But for us, this isn't particularly helpful because we don't experience God doing that for us. We read the passage and think, if Jesus rolled away my problems and paralyzed my enemies and showed up as unmistakably as a lightning strike, then of course I would have no problem believing. But all of us experience the silence of God as we experience hardships. We try to do the right thing. We commit it to the beautiful thing. We are working on the noble thing. But we have hardships that make us wonder, is our ideals, are they sustainable or are they just a stubborn exercise in futility? We wonder, did we choose poorly when we committed to this road? We wonder, should we shut down our conscience just for a moment and choose the road that seems easier. How long can people wait for a miracle? This past Thursday evening, uh, we had worship every night this past week. This past Thursday, Pastor Ke was preaching. And he mentioned this friend who was married and has three kids. And when the youngest was just three months old, that child's mother collapsed and fell into a coma. And to this day, the doctors do not know what triggered this, and she's been in a coma for 19 years. That friend is trying to do the right thing, but it's hard, and there are times when he wonders, 
did I do something wrong? How did I end up in this impossible situation? And he prayed many times, God, why are you picking on me? Because whenever we try to live righteously, God does not respond by giving us superhero powers. Instead, God often does the opposite, giving us unexpected accidents, inexplicable difficulties, and embarrassing weaknesses. Rarely does God work it out in miraculous ways, and few ever see an angel rolling their problems away. In the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it explains that to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So God does not take us out of the world or give us superpowers to be comfortable in this world. Instead, God promises to be with us and God promises this ability, this humble ability to persevere without growing bitter by filling us with his compassion and comfort. So Pastor Kes' friend with that comatose wife who for almost two decades has been praying for her to wake up is also a pastor. His name is Kim Byung-yeon. And he shares that God never audibly answered his question, why is my life so hard? He shares about fasting and praying, thinking if I can just pray the right combination of words and show that I have faith in as dramatic of a way as possible, maybe God will raise her from her coma. But after praying for God to remove his problem for about 10 years, he began to realize that God's power has been helping him to get up each day and to be both mother and father to his kids. God's power has also been filling those three kids with gratitude and courage. And he discovers that the God that he was asking for to raise his wife from the coma is the one that allowed them to get up each day to live faithfully, courageously, and peaceably. The way God answered his prayer is by loving him, by loving through him, even in his most difficult days. Friends, the women at the tomb experienced God's power in ground-shaking ways. They saw the glory of God radiating from angelic beings, and my guess is that these are experiences that you have not had. But to all of us, God is faithful. Facing our hardship and our disappointments, we wondered, how can I live when life is so hard? But we look back months and years later, and we see that we somehow are getting through it. In those moments of looking back, we see that in hidden and humble ways, without drawing attention to himself, God has been carrying us, making us persevere, allowing us to recover and repent enough so that we can keep on living and loving without giving way to fear and despair. We are still going, and that is proof that God's grace is greater than any obstacle or hardship we face. Sometimes a few people in the church testify of a more direct supernatural intervention of God. But we are not meant to feel entitled to those miracles because if learning a certain formula for prayer guaranteed that our circumstances would change, then religion would become a technique 
for manipulating God, and we would be peddling in superstition and magic. But Christianity is very realistic. Jesus warns us, he promises us, in this world you will have trouble. So your troubles are not a sign that God has forgotten about you. Know your troubles are a reminder for you to lean on Jesus, the one who said, you will have trouble, yet take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus is with us, and he will help us trust that God is using what we are going through to refine our character and to develop the strength in our love. Jesus will help us to live with courage and compassion, with curiosity and with calm. And that is as great a miracle as a heavy stone being rolled away. And when we recognize that God has helped us with the situations that we feared would be too much for us, then we are ready to join the Marys in listening to the angel's message in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. The angel knows that these women are remembering Jesus as the one who was crucified, defining him by what he suffered, rather than by what he achieved. The angel sees that these women are filled with fear because they think that the world has overcome Jesus. But the angel corrects them, saying in verse 6, He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And I believe that verse 6 is the key verse for being converted from a life that thinks that Jesus is good to believing Jesus is God. First, the women are told to remember what he said. Jesus did not come to primarily give us a new ethic or teaching. He did not come primarily to change our outward circumstances, to feed the hungry or to heal the sick. Jesus came and he says, I came because I am the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. He came to deal with the problem of separation between people, the problem of separation between people and God. And Jesus said that I will have to die to take away the sin of the world, but he also said that he would rise. And the angel is insisting that the Marys remember what Jesus said about himself and recognize that Jesus was not speaking in mysterious metaphors, Jesus was describing what would literally happen according to Yahweh's plan of salvation. So second, after remembering what Jesus said about himself and his mission, the Marys are asked to see the place where Jesus lay. The angel was saying, look, you thought Jesus would be lying there, needing your care. You thought Jesus, who was beaten and overwhelmed by the world, would lie here but he only lay there for a set time. And the Jesus that needs our pity is not there. Amen? As the Marys process the simple sentence, the Holy Spirit begins to change their hearts. And they realize that having an attitude of pitying Jesus allowed them to maintain their self-pity. They realize that daring to believe in a risen Jesus would mean committing to a life of gratitude, wonder, and courage. Believing in a crucified Jesus is pretty easy. In a world that is mostly ruled by darkness, you're just believing that Jesus was a momentary flicker of light, 
And from time to time, you meditate on Jesus and you honor him to the extent that you can, to the extent that you feel comfortable. But if you believe that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, then you have to believe that the power of the night is broken because of the rising of the sun. And you have to allow the resurrection to change fundamentally your perception of reality. The Marys were challenged to believe that God's glory radiates throughout creation and that the effect of sin was a momentary darkness. Belief in the risen Christ means we rightly understand that the darkness is a temporary affliction that God uses to train us for a life of everlasting glory. And the Holy Spirit begins this radical change of perspective when we remember what Jesus said in that empty tomb. In verse 7, the angel continues, Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So now the Marys are moving quickly for a different reason. In verse 1, they quickly came to the tomb because of what a pitiable crucified Jesus compels them to do. But now they must go quickly to their friends because of what the glorious risen Jesus compels them to do. They believe the risen one goes ahead of us and we are to obey his commands because there we will see him. Verse 8 tells us what it means to respond with faith. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. So faith means that we move in obedience according to the preponderance of evidence. Yes, there is still some doubt. Yes, we still have some fear, but we decide to move in the direction of faith with joy. Like a diver standing at the top of a board, we decide to jump into the water by shaking off our fear and moving with great expectation. And verse 9 tells us that this leap of faith is not foolish. It's not the squelching of our doubts in a self-deceiving sort of way because we are to experience verse 9, that suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him which means that as we move in obedience, our faith is corroborated by our experience of the risen Jesus. The one that we believe makes time to greet us and receive our worship is Jesus. And this manifestation of Jesus, again, is not as supernatural and as dramatic for us as it is for the people here. Whenever historically there were claims in the community that Jesus visited them, faith has taken a turn towards superstition. And instead of going to serve Jesus in the world, those communities tend to charge admission to the world that comes with curiosity to visit. So Jesus doesn't meet us in the flesh as he did for the Marys. Instead, Jesus meets us in a way that is best at fostering our holiness and as we pray for those experiences, we have to trust that Jesus knows best what type of encounter that we need. And that encounter is worship that might be loud, it might be a whisper, it might be emotional or it might be reserved. But through worship, we sense Jesus' nearness and over time, we can say that Jesus is meeting with us. 
And whenever Jesus meets with us, he will tell us the same things that he told the Marys in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And Jesus is saying to us, Do not be afraid. Jesus has overcome, and he has risen. He doesn't need our pity. Jesus has filled us with joy. And we are called to share this joy with others so that others can experience a life of faith. Would you pray with me? God, help us to consider what faith has brought us to church today. God, could it be that some of us believed in Jesus as the crucified prophet who lived a beautiful life but suffered a horrific death? And as a result, we think it is fitting to give him some respect, to bow our heads for a moment and remember his teaching as a way of gazing into the light in a world filled with darkness. God, do we come here pitying Jesus, thinking that he somehow needs us to care for his broken body, to give him respect so that he could have a little bit of comfort in his loss and death? Or God, do we dare to be here as people who believe the gospel message, that the tomb is empty, and there is no pitiable body that is needing our work to tend to him. Could it be that we can be here with faith that Jesus is alive and therefore deserving of our awe, of our worship, of our obedience? Help us, O oh God, to dare to wonder whether the faith that you want us to have is a faith that moves on from believing in Jesus as suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, into that next stage of faith where we believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence she shall come to judge the living and the dead. God, would you help us to know that more faith is possible, that more faith is demanded, because you are not content to have us pitying Jesus. You want to have us worship him. You want to have us with the faith that makes us truly alive. God, would you help us to examine our hearts and to strive to be able to offer you a worship that is fueled by a faith in the risen Christ. These things we pray in Christ's name.